BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello. Oh, there we go. Hello. Say hi. A couple different pushes. Yeah. Hi, honey. How are you? <laughs> it's funny. The 12-month-olds tw- are always a little hesitant mm-hmm. on this, and the 15-month-olds are all over it. So she's definitely walking around things. Yes, um, but maybe like three at a time. And it's more like she'll come walk to us and then she'll just kind of lunge herself at us at the end. That's about where I guess where she was, and that's perfect. That's right. Yeah. How about talking? A lot of babbling. Um, Mama, dad, dad. Enjoy your Mother's Day. Thank you. You too. Call us if you need anything, okay? Will do. Thank you. Say bye. Video doctor's appointments are the new norm as healthcare workers try to stop the spread of COVID-19. But sometimes those video calls just aren't enough. Large portions of health systems have been shut down for weeks. With growing concerns about public health outside the coronavirus, Wisconsin health systems are now rolling out plans to slowly ramp up. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning, Amanda. We are recording more frequent episodes of Open Record Monday through Friday to help you sort through what can be an overwhelming amount of coronavirus news. And we're recording this episode on Monday morning, May 11th, 2020. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Uh, This is the date, I believe. Am I right, Amanda? This would have been the last day of Governor Evers' emergency safer at home order had it not been for the DHS extension. This is where it gets complicated because we're in the last days of his emergency powers. So it's not necessarily the last day of the order. The order was going to expire. Well, I just just recalled May 11th being a significant date. So this is the end of the 60 day window that his emergency powers last. That's correct. That's all right. So I just thought I'd point it out because I know it's a significant date as we're watching this. I was looking at our um, just the calendar in my kitchen this morning and realizing that regardless of what happens with the Supreme Court, we're just a couple of weeks away from the end of even the, the, the current DHS order. So we are getting to an interesting time. And that kind of brings us to where we are today, because chances are you or someone you love throughout this time has had a doctor's appointment, a test, surgery, a procedure canceled, rescheduled or moved to a video call due to COVID-19. After weeks of uncertainty, Wisconsin's health systems are starting to talk about bringing back services. If you had a medical procedure that was canceled through Aurora a few months ago, they say now is the time to call and discuss your options. We do not want people to delay these procedures that could potentially have a long-term impact on their health. I just want to underscore that, um, you know, we can't just turn it on all at once. We want this to be safe, 
We are testing every patient who's getting an elective surgery. Here's the dilemma. Health systems don't want to pack people together in their facilities and potentially spread COVID-19. But there are other people who have serious health issues that are going untreated. This is a recent New York Times headline, just to give you an idea. The pandemic's hidden victims, sick or dying, but not from the coronavirus. This highlights the issues that we're seeing all over. People with other illnesses have been struggling to find treatment. Well, you know, you you talk about people who have serious health issues. I even wonder when you think about this of the number of people who are putting off what might be basic preventative uh, procedures. And and sure, maybe that's not serious or we don't know of it. But I think myself, I actually had uh, labs that were supposed to be uh, taken, blood drawn for certain things. And I've put that off because, well, it was preventative. It was part of a physical Is that really important? Well, what if something was found there and we just don't know? So there's a lot of that going on where people aren't going to the doctor. They're not getting checked up. And there are a lot of things that might be otherwise detected or treatments that are needed that just aren't happening. Absolutely. I think sometimes we mistakenly think of preventative as extra. And that's just not the case because there are serious illnesses and serious issues that can be detected during those appointments. But even people who already have documented serious issues are having trouble getting in to see their health care provider. And there are those conditions that fall in kind of the gray area where it could be serious. We're not sure if it's serious. And this is something that is affecting people's health. So a recent survey from the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network says nearly one in four cancer patients reported delays in their care because of the pandemic, and that includes access to in-person appointments, surgery, imaging, all kinds of services. It's not just chemotherapy that we're talking about. Clinical trials have been suspended. Uh, Those are very important, of course. So in our developments, when we're trying to find ways to treat these diseases and cure diseases. So On top of that, we have organ transplants where many potential donors have become infected so they can't donate. So organ donations are way down. You have patients who um, are needing kidney transplants and they risk getting the virus at the hospital. But then if you have kidney failure and you go on dialysis, you're risking exposure by going to a dialysis center several times a week. So we have a lot of people who are caught up in this Quite frankly, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And that's why health systems are trying to be really careful about how they roll out their reopenings. And, and I hope executive producer Sarah is listening. There's your title for today. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, we're always struggling to think of how do we title these these podcasts. Um, and, and I don't mean to say that flippantly because there are some real dilemmas here. Do, do you go and get some of this important treatment and, and risk infection? Do you stay home? How long uh, do we do it? But really the question now is, as we as hospitals, as as clinics start to add back in some of these services, how does that look and how does that happen um, in sort of a new reality where coronavirus COVID-19 is still going to be a concern until there is widespread distribution of a vaccine? So I think the first thing to note is no matter what health system you're talking about, those video calls, you know, maybe doing your primary care checkup through a video call with your doctor's office telemedicine. That's here to stay in some capacity. The question is, 
what exactly does it look like? So at the beginning of this episode, you heard I just recorded my daughter's one-year-old checkup. And that was very easy to do during a video call. A lot of that is question and answer. But even that video call, they can't do everything, right? So usually they would weigh her. They would examine her to make sure everything looks good physically. Maybe make sure there isn't an anomaly that I've missed. They can't really do that during video calls. So it certainly can be supplemental. But when it comes to some of those things where you really need to see the child or see the patient of any age, it can't make up for that. But I do believe if if we're going off of what these health systems are saying, we're going to see an increase in telemedicine in those video calls. Look for that, especially um, over the next several months, over the next few years, because quite frankly, insurance companies like telemedicine because it's it's cheaper. It doesn't cost as much. Um, well, there's been a lot of talk prior to this pandemic outbreak of, of increasing telemedicine, and then that was sort of a future of of medicine, but there have been so many roadblocks to that, and a lot of those roadblocks, because of the emergency, have been temporarily obliterated. The question is, will, will that make it easier to expand this when the sort of emergency, the crisis is over? Things such as, there are certain things that you can do in an emergency. You can actually authorize, and the federal government has authorized the use, in some cases, emergency situations, the use of FaceTime or Zoom, but you can't do that typically because those are not secure. And when you deal with the private, uh, the privacy concerns, the HIPAA concerns, uh, when it comes to healthcare, you can't partic- you know, routinely just use Zoom to see your doctor. So I- I've got to think there's an infrastructure that's got to be put in place for hospitals and, and, and clinics to be able to do this on a widespread basis. But nonetheless, the fact that they've been doing it already has probably erased some of the doubts or concerns that a lot of people in the healthcare industry have had. Absolutely. And another thing to think about is you're always going to have politics that enter into this. So I look at Pennsylvania, where there was recently a big battle over telemedicine um, because of the abortion situation. So you had Republicans saying, we're fine with approving this, this and that for telemedicine, but we want it to be restricted. We don't want abortion procedures or appointments that would precede abortions to be included in this. And Democrats said, no, we believe this is a women's health issue. Of course, Republicans don't believe it's a health issue, uh, typically when you're looking at the ideological spectrum. So that ended up becoming a big battle, and it was something I think a lot of doctors weren't necessarily prepared for. And it held up other provisions of telemedicine that had wide bipartisan support. So that's something that could always be a factor. I do want to start with Children's um, Wisconsin because they're starting to schedule a backlog of 1,500 surgeries that have been postponed. So all these health systems are saying, if you had something that was postponed, call us. Don't necessarily wait for us to call you. Um, Call us, and we're going to try to reschedule that. So Children's says that about 20,000 primary care visits were canceled since the COVID-19 pandemic. So now they're trying to reschedule those visits, and they're giving priority to children. They estimate about 14,000 children who need their immunizations or they need urgent care. Um, So my daughter's one-year-old appointment, she didn't need any shots. Her 15-month-old appointment, she will need shots. And that's something, of course, that needs to happen in person. And 
by then, you know, we'll hopefully be in a, in a much better place. But children who needed those shots during uh, when everything was locked down had a much harder time. Um, Pro healthcare wants to resume elective procedures this week, uh, tentatively Wednesday, but that plan is really going to depend on what the infection rate is doing, um, as well as the ability to test for COVID-19 and get supplies of PPE, personal protective equipment, like masks and gloves. What's interesting is that uh, I wonder how they're going to measure the infection rate and use that in their decision making. So remember, elective procedures are how these health systems make their money. That's why we've seen several nurses furloughed during COVID-19. Yeah, this has actually been an economic disaster for hospitals nationwide because they're losing uh, a huge part of what's been their moneymaker, and that is the elective surgeries. Absolutely. So, of course, there's incentive to start those quickly, but if that's going to lead to problems that overwhelm your hospital, you don't want to do that. So you have to be really careful with how you do it. Over the last few days in Wisconsin, we've seen a higher percentage rate of positive COVID-19 tests. Now, we've expanded testing beyond the sickest of the sick people, and that's had a dramatic effect, but we have seen percentages of positive tests come back with more with higher numbers. So what is that going to mean for pro healthcare's tentative plan to resume uh, these procedures as soon as Wednesday? Time will tell. We'll, we'll be sure to keep you updated on that. What, what I do wonder when I when I hear that, and I, and I don't know, and you study these numbers more closely than I do, but I hear those percentages are higher. That's one of the things that obviously the state's watching is looking for the percentage of tests to drop because we know we're doing a higher number of tests. So what does the percentage of positive cases look like? But at the same time, when those percentages are higher, when we're seeing or they're staying high, we're seeing a number of people testing positive, are we finding and do we know that there are a lot a lot of those tests are people with who are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms. And and I ask that because if you look at the number of people who are currently hospitalized across the state, that continues to drop. And in fact, statewide, the average hospital has no more than two to three COVID-19 patients who are inpatient right now. That's um, right. And so, so there are very few that are actually still hospitalized. And I think for some people who maybe even work in hospitals, they look at it and say, look, our hospitals are mostly empty when it comes to these kind of patients. And yet we're seeing the high rate of positive tests. Yeah. And we don't have the data right now on how many of those people are asymptomatic. I think the concern is still that community spread. So let's say every single person who's been tested is coming back asymptomatic, which you know, that that would be a, a very surprising case, but let's assume that. The concern is that then if those people are in your hospitals and they're spreading it and they spread it to someone who's already there who is in that high-risk category, then that's what they're concerned about. So is the idea then that when you start to ramp up elective surgeries, is the idea to have hospitals test people who are coming in for those things so that they know they're dealing with someone who is not infected before they bring them in for a a knee surgery? That's the goal. And that's why pro-healthcare says that its ability to resume elective procedures will be based in part on the ability to test for COVID-19. And that's a great goal. The reality, I think, is going to be a little trickier. We don't have 
the same problems accessing COVID-19 tests as we did at the beginning of this pandemic, but we're not giving them out like candy either. So I think making sure that we have comprehensive widespread testing, that's been a benchmark people have said for a lot of things, for resuming healthcare procedures, for reopening the economy, and we haven't quite seen it to the level where we can quickly determine who has it, who perhaps has had it to control the spread. So that's something that health systems right now are really grappling with. And I'm guessing knowing who does and doesn't have that coming in also impacts how much of that PPE you need to use if you're having a a knee surgery, an elbow surgery, or something else like that that's elective um, or a back surgery, and you know the patient is not infected, maybe you don't have to have the staff using some of the the, the scarce PPE that's that's on hand for those COVID-19 patients. Right. It allows you to really target the resources that are available to you and make sure you're using them in the situations where they are most needed. That's why when we talk about needing to be able to test people. It's not just for the our own comfort of knowing exactly how many people have had it. It's because when you have widespread comprehensive testing, you can then target isolation. You can target equipment. You can target resources to the people who you know have it and you know who hasn't had it. So it's easier for those people to move around. So that's why that testing component is so important. And it's something that really from day to day can change. And we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Now, you said you said that ProHealth is looking, hoping to start surgeries up this week, in fact, any idea some of the other systems, I mean, uh, Advocate Aurora, Ascension, are they close to doing the same thing? What have you heard from them? So Freighter Health says that it has slowly begun doing elective procedures, um, giving priority to patients who they've determined need that immediate care. So this is something Freighter Health is already doing, and they've become begun seeing patients in clinics who need diagnostic tests and who really the video calls, the telemedicine, isn't going to be practical. So that's something that they've cautiously been wading into. Ascension Wisconsin says it's going to start these phased resumption of services um, for non-urgent, medically necessary procedures, and then they're going to be ramping up their primary specialty care clinic appointments this upcoming week. So Ascension is really emphasizing that they have specific stages that they're going to be going through. And then Aurora says it's going to stagger appointments and patients are going to actually be asked to check in virtually when they're about half an hour away and when they arrive. And so they're going to be asked to remain in their cars until they receive a text coming in. So the elective surgery, I, it seems like for many of these health systems, it's a play it by ear situation. They, of course, want to start these up. And the people who need these surgeries want to start them up, right? Like, again, elective doesn't necessarily mean, uh, oh, it's a throwaway surgery. And you could be in a lot of pain, and this elective surgery was going to relieve you of said pain, and now you haven't been able to have that. So these are medical conditions that people have that need attention. And so the, the hospitals have a health incentive, but also certainly a financial incentive to start them up. But they also need to make sure that they're doing that in a responsible way. 
realistically, is this something that it, it would seem that's going to take time for hospitals to get back up to the kind of volume of traditional surgeries that we saw before COVID-19. So while they want to get this started, it's not going to be flipping a light switch and back to normal, right? Yeah, so Aurora kept using the same uh, language that Governor Tony Evers has used, which is turning the dial. And there was really a strong emphasis on this is not an immediately, okay, everything's fine, back to the way it was. Because the concern is if you do that, then you've just undone all the work that's been done over the last few months, right? The reason people were staying at home was to make sure our health systems don't get overwhelmed. So if everyone floods back in and we see a spike in COVID-19, we're back at square one again. And they certainly don't want to do that. So that's why you see these precautions. That's why you see these phases. And every health system is going to do things a little bit differently. And you're talking about different sizes. So Freighter Health is much smaller than Aurora or Ascension. So it makes sense that Freighter Health has already slowly begun elective procedures because there's a little more control over the situation there when you're dealing with just fewer facilities, fewer people, smaller number of staff. Um, For Aurora and Ascension, it's going to be a little bit of a different story. I do think another interesting aspect of this, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is that right now healthcare providers have widespread immunity from civil lawsuits. So part of Wisconsin's COVID-19 response bill was that it originally said that healthcare workers would have immunity from civil lawsuits for the treatment of COVID-19. The idea is it's such a new disease. We have some treatments that are very novel. It's the novel coronavirus. And they wanted to protect healthcare providers so they felt empowered to do what was best for their patients. The language got changed along the way. And now it says that up to 60 days after the end of this public health emergency, healthcare providers have this broad, widespread immunity from civil lawsuits. So we've we spoke to a woman a few weeks ago whose husband needed heart surgery during the pandemic. And uh, there was a mistake. The doctors told um, this woman there was a mistake during the surgery. As a result, her husband needed another surgery, a double bypass. He has a lot of complications from that. It's putting another surgery he needed for an aneurysm in jeopardy. And lawyers won't take her case. They said they would have taken it before this law was passed. But now uh, these healthcare providers have widespread immunity from civil lawsuits, even if something goes wrong and something that has nothing to do with the treatment of COVID-19 for 60 days after this public uh, health emergency ends, which means we're well into July for the time that that uh, covers. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out as elective surgeries and other non-COVID-19 procedures are ramped up. You go in for that uh, elective orthopedic surgery and the doctor makes a mistake um, it has nothing to do with COVID-19, but what you're saying is under this particular change in the law, this temp- this emergency change, it would be very difficult to to sue uh, for that mistake. Is that, yeah, is that the, what I'm, yeah. 
the lawyers that would take your case and file that lawsuit, this is their livelihood, they're turning away those cases because they're saying they have a responsibility to take on cases they think they can win. And according to that law, they believe that that lawsuit's going to get dismissed and there's there's nothing you can do. So many, so many strings you can pull on this that uh, that, that, are, that are connected and, and tied in. I even think about uh, just the number of. Th- there's obviously you started this episode with that uh, telehealth visit with your daughter, and I think of there are a number of things that doctors do routinely that uh, is, that historically they've wanted to see patients in person. For instance, before we re- uh, you know renew that prescription that you have, we want you to come in because we want to see you in person. I've got to think there's going to be a lot more of, all right, we're going to go ahead and continue that prescription for now or we can do a telehealth visit um, rather than uh, having you come in in person just so that we can continue your heart medication or whatever it might be. Well, and I mean, think about some of these really serious issues like uh, child abuse or domestic violence, right? A lot of times you can that you need to see the person in person, but also there's the privacy of that appointment. If it's just you and your doctor in a room, if you're doing something via video conference and you're at home and you're 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 not going to say, hey, this person who's sitting right next to me or this person who's in the kitchen is abusing me. And so there are other related things that are health issues, but they're also societal issues. They're also humanitarian issues uh, that can slip through the cracks when you don't have some of these traditional routes to see your provider. This particular podcast episode feels like the one that could branch off into about 10 different podcast episodes. But when you start talking healthcare and how it's been affected by the pandemic, there are just endless stories. There are endless stories. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch to see what kinds of changes stick and what kinds of changes are temporary and then things go back to the way they were, and how this all relates to insurance, right? That's something we haven't talked about in this episode yet, really. What gets covered and how it gets covered and what becomes the norm, uh, that's all up in the air right now. But the big thing right now is that health systems are figuring out how do we open up these services that have been curtailed or in some cases shut down completely in a safe way that's going to treat these other very serious health issues that have kind of fallen by the wayside during the pandemic, but isn't going to do so in a way that undoes all this work we were trying to do with social distancing during the pandemic and then it makes it all worse. Well, one thing that has become clear in in doing these podcasts and in covering this uh, alongside you, Amanda, for the last couple of months is if we thought in the beginning this was going to be a temporary emergency that was going to resolve itself within a few weeks, well, it's it's certainly abundantly clear now that's not the case. This is something that in one form or another we're going to be dealing with for a long time to come, even as restrictions ease, as surgeries come back, as businesses open. Uh, the, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic are far, far from over, and, and we're going to have a lot more to talk about as, as the, the days and weeks uh, come ahead. Absolutely. I think there's there's been such an emphasis on when Governor Evers and his administration, when the safer at home order ends, that sometimes it's easy to forget that there are so many other things that go beyond that and certainly how healthcare care systems 
operate uh, that falls into that category. So we're going to stay on this. And of course, we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic, the fallout, the days, weeks, months after all of this. So if there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. And thanks once again to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you have not done so already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson. For Amanda St. Hilaire, we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.